0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicke-Wilson.
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show, we are going a-questing. That's right. We are not seeking out the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant. No, we are going off in quest of the historical Jesus. Sir Henlicky, tell us, why are we undertaking this quest?
1: Well, the so-called quest for the so-called historical Jesus has dominated um, modern Protestant theology and increasingly Catholic theology, and uh, it's actually um, you you we will show today it's actually conceived of as an alternative to the tradition of Christian theology, and which makes it significant and important in many ways. Um, and i think that um, the the approach we're going to take in this sarah is a statement of ferdinand christian bauer who was a church historian of the 19th century who said that the history of dogma is the critique of dogma so in other words once you know the history of how doctrine developed uh, you have all the uh, critical perspective on doctrine that you'll ever need and we're going to kind of flip that insight and say the history of the quest for the historical Jesus is the critique of the quest for the historical Jesus. That's kind of what we're going to try to do today.
0: Nice. So basically, the attempt to recover, uncover a historical Jesus has, for all intents and purposes, replaced Christology. And so that is, is, uh, and that is not, an and innocent or objective or scientific pursuit. It has its own very deep agenda behind it. And that's part of what we're going to try to peel back the quest for the historical, quest for the historical Jesus, in a sense.
1: Right. And I think, you know, we noticed in the previous episodes on Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King Jr., the fruitfulness of uh, uh, paying heed to the mission and uh, earthly work of Jesus um, and understanding how it was uh, his uh, enactment and proclamation of the impending uh, reign of God that actually got him into the trouble that ended him up on a Roman stake and required the divine vindication on the third day of the resurrection. Uh, So we've seen that attention to the earthly Jesus um, is important and theologically important, uh, and how it's important in Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King. Um,
0: but wait a minute. And it... was, you, you just said paying attention to the life of the earthly Jesus, but that sounds to me like an internal... correction to Christology and saying that a Christology that only talks about a crucified and risen man without talking about who that man was is a faulty Christology. But paying attention to the earthly Jesus as reported by scripture and faith is different from a historical Jesus who is known apart from any of that other stuff, right?
1: Right. I I think, yes, I think basically that's right, Sarah. Um, uh, But here's the difficulty the tradition of creedal Christianity, when it wants to identify Jesus, only tells us that he's born of a woman under the law and that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And so if your approach uh, to Jesus is strictly defined by those bookend markers of his uh, very Jewish life, right, um, you can practically bracket out of significance what happened between his birth and his death. And uh, we need to contextualize the cre- creedal tradition uh, formulated itself that way because it was poised against the Gnostic docetic teaching that Jesus only seemed to be human, um, or more precisely, that the Jewish Jesus who lived who came in the flesh uh, as the first epistle of john puts it the gnostic dostic teaching that jesus only seemed to be human uh, or more precisely that the transcendent spirit who employed him temporarily was a very different being than the jew jesus who died on the cross yes yeah, so the creed is speaking against this Gnostic docetist teaching, uh, and it does not need to fill in the blank, uh, though a certain kind of blind spot, I think, was created uh, inadvertently by the creed uh, in the process.
0: Yeah, I have a, a Pentecostal theologian friend who who said that his main objection to the Apostles' Creed is that it jumps right from incarnation and birth to uh, crucifixion. And he said, why, why doesn't the creed talk about the fact that Jesus healed or preached or any of the amazing other things he did? And I was like, oh yeah, but you know, I do maybe because, um, the way our liturgical patterns work, I was always hearing the creed after hearing an excerpt of a gospel story and overwhelmingly, of course, because you know, Jesus." death and resurrection starts, parts are at the end and hyper-focused on Holy Week and Easter, nearly every Sunday, I would hear a story of Jesus' life that was always set in opposition to the creed that doesn't talk about Jesus' life. So maybe that's why I never even noticed the lacuna.
1: Right. And I think, you know, I asked you uh, in preparation for this today to read a particular book by a scholar named Johannes Weiss at the turn of the last century, he was the son-in-law of the famous Lutheran theologian Albrecht Ritschel. Um, and he uh, wrote a book on the kingdom of God and the proclamation of Jesus, right? And, you know, when you, uh, when you read that book, you noticed right away at the beginning of the book what the agenda uh, of it was. That there was a certain narrowness in the preaching of the Lutheran churches in Germany with which he was familiar Right. That you never heard anything. Uh, go ahead. Tell, tell us about that.
0: Oh, well, he, he just says at the beginning that, you know, he's, he's a scholar undertaking an, an excavation of the historical Jesus, but he is also hoping to expand. He, he was he was a churchman. I was struck by that. He was looking to expand the preacher's range from purely the forensic declaration of the forgiveness of sins as the be-all and end-all of Christian content to a wider vision of what the kingdom of God was that Jesus, you know, came to proclaim and inaugurate.
1: Right. And, and, you know, you can almost say it's a caricature of um, historical Lutheran preaching, that Jesus is significant because he was born in order to die, and if you get that, you got the you got the whole thing. You got the point, right? <laughs> right. And that, in other words, it was precisely Jesus's proclamation of the reign of God, uh, which we'll talk about when we get to this later on in this podcast, that got him into trouble. And that's if you don't understand that, you don't understand Jesus very well.
0: Right. Okay, well, before we, we start this excavation of the quest for the historical Jesus, I just would like to append my own disclaimer, which is that by the time I got to seminary, I have the feeling that uh, the historical Jesus quest was so thoroughly discredited that like I got sort of a passing knowledge of it and um, almost immediately why it really didn't work very well. And so I have spent very little time with this and have never, honestly taken it all that seriously, except to kind of roll my eyes at it. But dad, of course, because you are a much more careful and attentive scholar who uh, looks carefully (laughs) at these things and goes to the trouble of critiquing them meaningfully instead of scoffingly, like I do in this case, anyway, uh, you will be the one who is going to be leading us the way and I'm going to be offering um, intelligent. Ah, mm, okay. Well, that's very helpful as we go along. (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, that's that's your disclaimer. I'll take that cum grano salis. Can you translate <laughs> the Latin
0: with a grain of salt? Yes, you have to okay. know Latin if you're going to do a theology podcast. All right, let's get going. Right.
1: Okay, so let's well, the the story really begins with Immanuel Kant, because he is the one who who lays the foundations for the entire th- Protestant German theology of the nineteenth century and uh, he wrote several books that are very important in this respect. One of them was a late-in-life polemic called The Conflict of the Faculties, in which he just assailed the continuing influence of Orthodox Lutheranism on university faculties. And he basically said You are teaching things that cannot be rationally affirmed. You have no business butting in to the sciences, the business of the sciences. And we philosophers have instituted the tribunal of reason. And we will rule in and out anyone's discourse as belonging uh, within a university faculty, according to the standards of pure reason that we are... Devoted to, um, and so his hostility to the tradition of orthodox Lutheran theology is unbounded, uh, and undoubtedly there is some merit in Kant's critique of the imperiousness of traditional theological faculties uh, in the at the uh, by the time of the High Enlightenment, which he so represented.
0: Well, it's it's touching how naively hopeful he was about what the Tribunal of Reason could accomplish. But I suppose the experiment had to be undertaken in order to see how it would fail in the end.
1: Yeah, well, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, the masters of suspicion, uh, are the unraveling of the Tribunal of Reason. But we, we don't need to get into that here. But the point here is that his second very influential book is Religion, within the limits of reason alone. Um, And here he had to deal uh, gingerly with the great influence of the historic Christian tradition. And he had to interpret it um, or try to interpret it in a rational way. Um, So this is how Kant filtered uh, the Christology uh, of the Orthodox Lutheran uh, theology that still dominated Germany at his time. And he basically made an argument like this, that that the reason why the world was created can only be that its purpose is the perfect humanity, a, a, a full moral perfection of humanity. And when this is achieved, happiness will follow in its wake and this is what is the purpose and therefore the pleasure of God. Uh, in fact, this morally perfect human being is in God from all eternity. The idea of him proceeds from God's being. He is not therefore a created thing, but God's only begotten son, the Logos, through which all things uh, were made. And without him, nothing in the world was made. You see how he's paraphrasing all of these biblical, Christological themes. In him, in the morally perfect human being, God loved the world. And only in him and through adoption of his disposition can we hope to become children of God. So it's now our duty to elevate ourselves to this ideal of moral perfection, the prototype of moral disposition and its in its complete purity, and for this the very idea which is presented to us by reason for emulation can give us force, can give us inspiration to do it, and this human being can thus hope to become pleasing to God and thereby blessed, trusting that under similar temptations and afflictions one would steadfastly cling to the prototype of humanity, uh, the reason for which God created the world. Okay?
0: No, not okay. That's just, I'm sorry. It's like, just to hear it, it sounds preposterous. And like, as he's talking, as you're reading out this quote, I'm thinking like, where on earth does he get the idea that Jesus is morally perfect if he discards all the Christology? Like, I remember one time coming across this... um anti-Christian polemic from a Muslim author and, like, pointing out all the, like, immoral and wicked things Jesus did in his life. Like, he stole a cult, uh, you know, in order to ride him into Jerusalem and then just abandoned him there and, you know, like, various things like this. And um, <laughs> and I just, like, if if you're going to the gospel looking for a morally perfect person, well, I guess this, this is why we're going to have the historical reconstructors come along and say, well, maybe the Jesus story is really not about a morally perfect person who's inspiration for us all, but like, you know, some kind of zealot who throws himself against the wheel of history to try to force God's hand to bring in the kingdom, which seems much more actually rational, a reading of the Gospels than what Kant just unloaded on us there. Yeah.
1: Well, that's about a century after Kant to, before we get to that point. But the, here's the thing, Sarah. If, if you are under the sway of the high enlightenment and the philosophy of a figure like Immanuel Kant, the story of the incarnation, the birth, or, and the story of the resurrection uh, as a response to his death have become utterly incredible and and uns- nonsensical. You can't make any sense out of them. Uh, and so what's left? And then religion within the re- limits of region al- alone imagines that God would have will to a a morally perfected humanity, and that the figure of Jesus can serve as a, you know, a a living symbol, a a prototype of that morally perfected humanity. And in many ways, the entire 19th century quest for the historical Jesus uh, was looking to find this this ideal prototype historically in Jesus to to serve as a new foundation for a morally purified faith along Kant's lines. So the resurrection of the crucified is superfluous in this quest. What we're looking for, just as Kant stipulates, is the ideal prototype of moral humanity. And then all the 19th century goes on a quest for that.
0: So just a, a quick question. In your judgment, was uh, this this loss of faith with the rise of science and enlightenment thinking, was this an inevitable and necessary kind of a trial by fire that the church and its dogmatic tradition had to pass through? Or do you identify some serious failure within within the, 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 the faithful of the church, the, the doctrinal thinkers and the preachers that Made the Jesus story so, or the the, the dogmatic claims incredible, and um, opened up the way for someone like Kant.
1: Yeah, I think basically the the deep flaw, and this will take us well beyond the boundaries of this podcast, is the treatment of miracles as some kind of proof, uh, and this is an apologetic tendency within the entire Christian theological tradition. And that is because miracles are no longer understood as they ought to be understood historically and contextually uh, in Second Second Temple Judaism as assertions of divine sovereignty over a world that's fallen prey to anti-divine and demonic powers. And when you treat something like the, the, the birth of Jesus from the Virgin Mary, or his resurrection from the dead as supernatural proofs of Jesus' authority, not only are modern people going to roll their eyes because they don't believe in such supernatural events in general, but they're not even going to grasp the significance of the, the, the real theological significance of resurrection as vindication and as birth from Mary, his Jewish mother, as fulfillment of promises to Israel and commitment through Israel to the redemption of all humanity. You're not going to grasp that that's what these things are for. You're going to treat them uh, as nothing but uh, unconvincing proofs of an appeal to authority.
0: Okay, thanks. That, that's helpful. Let's move on.
1: Okay, well, the next big step after Kant is Friedrich Schleiermacher the uh, influential father of uh, liberal Protestant theology. And he's actually, a—I know you don't like him very much, but he's, he's a rather interesting fellow in the sense that he disputed Kant's uh, moralism, uh, notion of moral disposition and its purity as the essence of humanity for which God created the world. And he actually picked up on a theme that is, that is biblical and Augustinian and Lutheran, namely the, what he called, unfortunately, the feeling of absolute dependence. And by this, he meant that religion is basically a, a, a living response to the fact of human finitude, that when we by the time we wake up to adult life we know that our lives have been destined and determined the german word is bestimmung bestimmen which can mean both to destine something and to determine something uh, and, and because of in uh, in infinity of ways we have been formed before we can assume any agency and the root issue in religion is how do we respond? How do we respond to this um, feeling of absolute dependence that we're not finally in ultimate control of our own lives? What do we do about that? What can we do about that? And here, Schleiermacher got the idea that after Kant, after the Enlightenment, after the... um, um, collapse of the appeal to authority through supernatural miracles that happened with them, we could actually look at Jesus and see in him a human being with a perfect consciousness of God, the power, the all-determining power that that holds us totally in his um, hands uh, as the loving Heavenly Father. And that Jesus was the human being, therefore, who emerged in history with a perfect consciousness of God.
0: That's so dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. Good, good for him. Good for Schleiermacher. He's trying to retrieve religion. He's acknowledging that religion has something to do with feelings and transcendence and then all you need is a big old Lisbon earthquake to make us really wonder if God loves us so much after all. But okay, fine, fine.
1: Yeah, that was a little earlier in history. That, that was the refutation of um, Leibniz. Anyway, okay. So but what's remarkable, Sch- uh, Schleiermacher uh, uh, published lectures on the life of Jesus. And he was kind of a pioneer quester for the historical Jesus. What's utterly remarkable from a contemporary perspective is that he thought the Gospel of John is the historically basic account that gives us the psychology of Jesus as an exemplar of perfect human consciousness of God. Now, I mean, it's just a a truism today, isn't it, that the Gospel of John is among the latest developments in New Testament literature and so forth. Um, so uh, his, 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 his reconstruction uh, of the life of Jesus is not very convincing. I should mention very quickly, he had, he had a remarkable theory, um, revived a remarkable old theory about the resurrection, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but revived in the cool of the tomb showed himself to his disciples.
0: I'm getting a mental image of myself as, as those two grumpy old guys on the Muppet show, Waldorf and Statler, who just like sit up in the, in the balcony and mock the whole show. Uh, But I'll, I'll try to restrain myself. Okay.
1: Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Okay. Well, you'll really like the next one, David Friedrich Strauss who published a book called The Jesus of History and the Christ of Faith.
0: And this, was,
1: this was a devastating critique of Schleiermacher's uh, Doctrine of Jesus uh, as the uh, human being with a perfect consciousness of God. He argued that not only the Gospel of John, but everything also in the synoptics was so layered over with Christian legends and myth. That the recovery of the real historical Jesus was impossible, and this was a devastating book. Uh, Karl Marx read it with enthusiasm. It's rumored that Abraham Lincoln, as a young man, read an English translation of it. You know, it was just, it was just the um, um, the um, the textbook. For 19th century infidelity, as they I think they <laughs> called it in those days. <laughs>
0: You know, here's an interesting little connection there is uh, Strauss was an ancestor, either a grandfather or great uncle of Elizabeth Beresigel, the Orthodox theologian that I wrote my dissertation and and book on. And um, in fact, that was the reason why her father lost faith. He did have her baptized as a baby, I think, just because that was what you did. But she was not raised in the faith at all. And then when she became an adult and was one of the first women to study theology in Strasbourg, uh, this was still like th- there was no there was no doctrinal content to Christianity at all. So when she became Orthodox, it was because she finally discovered the rich dogmatic tradition of Christianity uh, that the uh, thin gruel liberal Protestantism of uh, German Lutheranism that she had been raised adjacent to just couldn't possibly offer her.
1: Wow, that's interesting, uh, uh, and I, I think maybe not a few. Um... People have followed Ber Sejal's um, journey uh, out of a desiccated liberal Protestantism into um, something like uh, Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy.
0: Yeah, I know when I've when I've talked to uh, Orthodox theologians who are who are like, do you 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 study her, but do you feel weird that she left Lutheranism as like the kind of Lutheranism she left is a Lutheranism I have never known firsthand, and what she was lacking, I have not been lacking. So I'm I'm glad you guys got her. She did you a lot of good, no problem. <laughs>
1: <laughs> good sir, yes, the Orthodox could use a little bit more of Elizabeth Beresigal. I agree. <laughs> Okay. Well, we're going to, now, if you're interested in the 19th century lives of Jesus, uh, you can read about them in Albert Schweitzer, writing a century later, uh, at the end of the 19th century, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. Because he goes through like uh, dozens of these biographies of Jesus and analyzes them like an excellent literary critic. And as I mentioned, all of these 19th century lives were trying to refute um, uh, Strauss, no matter whether they were following Kant or Schleiermacher, by reconstructing a a historically plausible biography of Jesus, which meant, of course, that you had to get into the head of Jesus. You had to understand his psychology, his consciousness, his consciousness of God, um, or of moral duty, or something like that. Um, and if you're interested in that, you can. You don't have to read all these novels. You can read. I mean, <laughs> biographies. You can read Schweitzer's description of them, right? Um, and it was a de- Schweitzer's was a devastating work of deconstruction. Um, uh, I'll, just a few quotes from the Quest <laughs> of the Historical Jesus. It was not only each epoch that found its reflection in Jesus. Each individual created him in accordance with his own character. There is no historical task which so reveals a man's true self as the writing of the life of Jesus. So, what did you actually find in these 19th century lives? You found my favorite Jesus. Jesus, as I would like Jesus to be, right? That's that's, and he actually shows this in great detail. And why, you know, stop and think about this for a minute. When you read the Gospels, whether the Synoptics or John, there is zero interest in Jesus's psychology.
0: You mean by that, like like his, his like inner dialogue or something like that? His or? inner
1: life. Yes, that's what I mean. There is no interest in Jesus's inner life, uh, nowhere. You you get no development of his consciousness uh, uh, or of any uh, tensions or dramas going on inside of his head, any decisions or choices that he has to make from his birth to his baptism to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to his death on the cross. He is portrayed as a man on a mission, totally devoted to his mission. Um, and why he has this mission, why he believes in this mission, how he uh, decides to accept this mission. All of those reflections are absent, which means you have a big blank canvas on which to write, fill in the blanks with the psychology of Jesus.
0: So I I just want to think it helps to clarify this point. So because in the 19th century, this is also the rise of the novel as a genre. And a novel is particularly interested in tracing out a person's development and psychology over time. So in that respect, they're kind of doing what is becoming literarily important anyway. But I think for, from our perspective now, um, th- what you just said could be misread. It's not like Jesus has no personality or like he's a big blank or that he doesn't have an interior life. Like, for example, we know he went apart to pray or that when Lazarus died, he wept, we are told. Or in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he there's clearly some kind of struggle expressed in, you know, the sweat like drops of blood and saying if this cup can not pass from me so we're not saying that those things are not present in the story, but this particular trying to reconstruct, like, how did Jesus figure out he was the Messiah? And how did he, you know, uh, feel about his his father in heaven? And why do he start calling him father? Like, those kind of things are not accessible or portrayed in any way in the gospel, but not that Jesus is just like this kind of empty superhero. I think if we push the no psychology thing too far, people will just kind of imagine him as a boring Superman and not uh, the distinct person that is actually portrayed in the gospels.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe the—thank you, Sarah. That's a very helpful clarification. I'm glad you spoke up to that effect. The point is the Gospels show us Jesus from the outside.
0: They don't reveal
1: Jesus from the inside.
0: That's good. That's really helpful.
1: And when they don't reveal Jesus from the inside, that's a big blank canvas on which the 19th century questers could write their own scripts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now, here's another, you know, after all these years, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Here's another observation Schweitzer made about the quests for the historical Jesus claiming the status of science. He writes, for the last 10 years, modern historical theology has more and more adapted itself to the needs of the man in the street. More and more, even the best class of works Even in the best class of works, it makes use of attractive headlines as a means of presenting its results in a lively form to the masses. Intoxicated with its own ingenuity in inventing these, it becomes more and more confident in its cause, and has come to believe that the world's salvation depends in no small measure on the spreading of its own assured results broadcast among the people. It is time that it should begin to doubt itself, to doubt its so called historical Jesus, to doubt the confidence with which it has looked to its own construction for the moral and religious regeneration of our time. This Jesus is not alive. End quote. Oof. Take <laughs> take that, Jesus seminar!
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, take that! Like every every other year, there's a new book. In fact, I'll I'll try to find and put in the show notes. My my friend, the New Testament scholar Troy Troft-Grubin, wrote an essay for me while I was editor of Lutheran Forum called something like "How Not to Fall for the Next Jesus Hoax." <laughs> and I mean, like it just has never stopped.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you laughed about the influence of the quest for the historical Jesus in your seminary education. But I think what's happened is that an entire industry parallel to Christian theology has emerged called biblical studies or something like that, which is utterly alienated from the faith of the church and conceives of itself as actually an alternative. To the historic faith of the church, uh, I remember some years ago uh, when I was a pastoring uh, part time a small uh, congregations on the outskirts of Blacksburg, Virginia, uh, where Virginia Tech, an enormous research university, is located, and the congregation had taken in um, by the previous pastor, basically a, a, an unconverted. <laughs> person and he was participating in the church. And uh, he was just thrilled when the newspapers broke the story about the discovery of the gospel of Judas and thought that this at long last revealed the truth about Jesus. And I was just flabbergasted that anybody could fall for such a hoax. And I wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper saying, you know, No serious scholar believes that the gospel of Judas uh, existed uh, within 200 years of the time of Jesus, and that the whole story is a a late uh, fabrication um, uh, inspired by Gnostic theology. And he was so deflated. I mean, this, (laughs) you know, that Judas was the true disciple who agreed to betray Jesus in order that he could die and escape from this veil of tears and go back to heaven. <laughs> and it was the other disciples who tried to hold on to him and keep him in the flesh. <laughs> it it's just the absurdity of the whole game is just uh, beyond, but it's influential for people. I guess, Sarah, that's the point I'm making.
0: Well, and it, it's clearly, I mean, in that person's case, a projection of his own bad feelings about his lousy discipleship. And, and, you know, in a weird way, it's asking, you know, d- can Jesus still love one of his enemies who has failed him so badly? And unfortunately it's these crappy historical reconstructions or fictions that are, you know, somehow people are hearing some fragment of the gospel in that. Uh, But yeah, it, it's it's kind of tragic in its own way. But you know, what also strikes me, Dad, is that this is one of those uh, backhanded proofs of of Jesus' uh, true status as Son of God and Lord. And um, <laughs> because people just can't let him go, like. Why not just stop caring about Jesus and saying, fine, let Christians have him. I don't care. It's like so many people who who don't have faith are alienated from the church, are not Christians. They they can't let go of Jesus anyway. Jesus keeps afflicting them anyhow. So there's some weird testimony to his lordship in that.
1: That's an interesting reflection. I wouldn't doubt that it's true. And it's probably true all through the centuries in some way or, or another. But what Schweitzer makes the really important point, that Jesus of Nazareth will not suffer himself to be modernized. As a historic figure, he refuses to be detached from his own time. So, if you want a historical Jesus, you've got to go back to Second Temple Judaism. That was the devastating import of Schweitzer's critique of the quest. And he said that the, the Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who was presented in these lives of Jesus, preaching the ethics of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven on earth and died to give his life's blood in final consecration of that cause, that Jesus, Schweitzer concludes, never had any existence. He was a figure of um, Protestant liberal theology and clothed uh, in these novels, I I mean, quests with historical garb. All right. So so at the end of the book, Schweitzer uh, put his cards on the table and said what he thought this real historical Jesus really, who he really was. And the totally disturbing discovery that he made was that Jesus was an apocalyptic figure who believed in the miraculous um, nearness of the supernatural kingdom of God breaking in, about to break in. And when his hope in this was disappointed at the end, he he wrote, he famously threw himself against the wheel in a vain attempt to force the kingdom's coming, but instead was crushed by that wheel. So Jesus was, for Schweitzer, an apocalyptic nut who believed in the coming of the kingdom of God miraculously, and when his hope was disappointed, he tried to force it by getting himself killed.
0: Well, honestly, that is more plausible to me than Kant's version of Jesus. <laughs> I don't, don't, I wouldn't agree with it, but it's more, it's, it's, it's a better one.
1: And he tries then, and this is so typical of the quest for the historical Jesus. It goes back to that ancient docetist Gnostic separation of the son of Mary from the son of God, the Jesus of history from the Christ of faith, uh, He concluded the book in a very famous passage, which is actually echoed in a hymn in the Lutheran With One Voice hymnal number 678. He comes to us as one unknown. Without a name, as of old by the lakeside, he came to those men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me, and sets us to the task which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings, which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. Close quote. Thus endeth Schweitzer's The Quest of the Historical Jesus.
0: So it's funny, even, even though he concludes Jesus was an apocalyptic nut who was disappointed, he, even Schweitzer can't quite get away from Jesus as inspirational figure for us now.
1: Right. And I think that's what we, if we looked at a contemporary figure like Marcus Borg, I think we would find something very similar to Schweitzer's conclusion here. But let's not jump ahead of the story. Uh, time is running short on us and we have other material to work through here, don't you think?
0: Uh, yes. So th- let me just give one last comment on Schweitzer before we move on. I'm realizing now, or I'm remembering as we're talking, that I did actually read The Quest for the Historical Jesus, probably when I was in seminary or graduate school. And the the chief thing I remember, you know, besides the kind of comedy of his deconstruction of these novels, I mean, biographies of Jesus, is that, you know, he, he finally concludes it's Jesus' biographies are just a mirror for your own face and everybody finds themselves in it. And for me, that was just so absolutely devastatingly insightful and true. I think that's why I've never had the slightest interest in historical reconstructions of Jesus ever since, because it just, uh, e- even when I, I've looked at, at other things like, like Borg, for example, it's just like, it seems so transparently what you think and what you would like Jesus to be. And, um, you know, there there are some kind of, um, I don't know, rules for deciding what is more or less likely to be historically accurate. I can see some of the logic behind them, but I, I just think Schweitzer nailed it. And I could never quite figure out why people just didn't say, yeah, Schweitzer, right. Let's just not bother with this anymore. I guess I'm the one who hasn't bothered with it anymore.
1: Well, yeah, I, and, I, and I think we can say a few things about why the quest has not died and why it's continued to revive. Um, let's just note that in the aftermath of, of Schweitzer, uh, the book I asked you to read by Johannes Weiss um, confirmed or basically confirmed Schweitzer's hypothesis that Jesus, the Jesus of history was an apocalyptic figure. Uh, and that's not only or chiefly because he expected the uh, kingdom of God to break in supernaturally, but rather, and I think this is a really hugely important point against the whole legacy um, uh, flowing from Immanuel Kant, the, the, what he called the antithetical conception of the kingdom of God as opposed to the thetic, thetic, antithetical, thetic conception of the kingdom of God. The thetic conception of the kingdom of God is Immanuel Kant's philosophy, the moral purposes for which God created humanity. The kingdom of God would be when humanity rises up to its moral perfection. Then God will reign when human beings are morally perfect, perfected. And he said, and speaking as the son-in-law of Albert Richel, uh he knew what he was talking about because Ritchell was the Lutheran theologian of the 19th century who basically used Kant's philosophy um, as a framework for his um, revisionist Lutheran theology. Uh, but Weiss looked at the, Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom of God and said, look at When Jesus says the reign of God, Basilea totheo, he's got in mind the conflict with the Regnum Diaboli, with the kingdom of the devil. And it's an apocalyptic conflict between God and anti-divine powers, uh, as we talked about it uh, some time ago in the podcast on powers and principalities. Um, Of course, that was a pretty devastating exegetical argument at the time. Uh, giving um, uh, a, a historical critical argument for the truth of Sh- Schweitzer's uh, hypothesis.
0: Okay, well, I think it's time to jump into the 20th century. And believe it or not, this this dark uh, and dismal story gets even darker and more dismal now, doesn't it?
1: It sure does. Just one more footnote. At this time, a Lutheran theologian named Martin Kaler published a book called The Jesus of History and the Historical Biblical Christ. And this was a book that Carl Broughton, as a young theologian, uh, cut his teeth on. Uh, and basically, he, in a w- way parallel to Schweitzer and Weiss, he said, the whole quest for the historical Jesus is a chimera. They're chasing after a, uh, chasing after a windmill uh, or something like that, or a uh, a, a tornado or whirlwind. That's what I'm trying to think of. Uh, because there's only historically one Christ, and that's the Christ who proceeds out of the pages uh, of the uh, scriptures in the life of the church. So there was a, a principled protest on theological grounds voiced at that time by Martin Kaler. But let's now turn to the dark chapter of the quest in the 20th century. Well, I uh, one of the uh, what I'd really like to do is call attention to a brilliant and important book by Susanna Heschel.
0: She the daughter of Abraham Joshua Heschel.
1: Yes, that's right, and she's a, a contemporary Jewish thinker and researcher, and she wrote a book uh, called The Aryan Jesus. The Aryan Jesus. Now, long ago, there was a legend. Um, we don't know the origins of it exactly it might have been Gnostic, it might have been Jewish, uh, Jewish Jewish, polemic, we don't really know, that alleged that Jesus was in fact not born of the Virgin Mary. That was a pious cover-up uh, by the Christians of the scandalous fact that Jesus was the bastard child of a Roman uh, a centurion or a Roman soldier.
0: Oh, that one still goes around.
1: Yeah, it does it's it's it goes way back in history. I don't uh, the point here is that Walter, um, a, a biblical scholar in Germany in the 1920s named Walter Grundmann, picked up this old legend and uh, ran with it. Um, um, and he published a book called Jesus the Galilean. And the hypothesis here was, of course, that in fact, Jesus's origins were not in his birth in Bethlehem, but his uh, origins were in Nazareth in Galilee, uh, which was a mixed region. It wasn't purely Jewish. Um, And uh, he picked up this idea that Jesus's lifelong battle against the Jews indicated that in fact, he was an Aryan. He was an Aryan Jew fighter. so his historical Jesus, yeah. Well, he got himself into a position of prominence in Nazi Germany. He uh, led the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence on German Church Life.
0: <laughs> well, at least they were at least they were really honest about what they were doing. This is no propagandistic cover-up title. This is saying exactly what they're doing. I give him credit for that.
1: But here's the, th- the the difficulty I think for us that he he built upon some Protestant commonplaces, for example, that Jewish legalism and ritualism and Greek intellectualism had distorted the original message of Jesus. That doctrine divides, but action unites. Uh, that ethical relevance to contemporary social and political struggles, not metaphysical speculation, helps us today. Um, And so building upon these, you know, Protestant tropes, um, Grundmann uh, turned away from theology, and he found in the History of Religion School, um, that's a, a title given to, uh, this method of um, uh, what I called earlier contemporary biblical studies, which um, wants to eschew theology, it wants to just uh, jettison the whole project of theology and interpret um, religion purely historically in historical terms. For example, contemporary uh, Marcus Borg. Uh, relies heavily on what he calls religious studies scholarship, which is kind of a descendant from the history of religion school at the time of Walter Grundmann. Okay, so um, this is how um, Heschel describes Walter Grundmann's so-called historical Jesus. She writes, the Galilean Jesus argument entered the work of university theologians in the 1920s and 30s who were rejecting supernatural miracles and established Christian dogma in favor of a historical approach to scriptures. And many were influenced by the methods of the history of religion school. As historians, they rejected the binding nature of church doctrine, and viewed texts as products of cultural and religious beliefs of their era. The canonicity of texts was irrelevant to their weight as historical evidence for the circumstances of Christianity's origins. So that, to this day, marks this methodological divergence between uh, someone like uh, Martin Kaler, who's saying... from within the world of Christian theology, there's really only one Jesus, the historic biblical Christ. The son of Mary is the son of God. The son of God is the son of Mary. Uh, You can't separate a Jesus of history from the Christ of faith. And that is a hermeneutical uh, prius. It's it's a hermeneutical axiom. And if you try to step out of that, you're going to uh, your your framework uh, in the history of religions approach is going to pull apart what is indissolubly knit together in the sources okay? you know i'm
0: struck by the parallel to the you know early or first millennium christological battles over the one person and two natures of Christ and christologies that are are very big on keeping the two natures compartmentalized and um you know and as as we've learned from Luther's christological um focus to start from the one person uh, rather uh, and from for, for out of the one person you can talk about the the two natures the divinity and the humanity and what a different kind of result that is than having two uh, completely alienated natures and then trying to squash them into a tertium quid.
1: Very good. Excellent. I think that's exactly spot on. What we have from the New Testament is one Lord Jesus Christ, not two Lords, not a son of Mary on the one side and a son of God on the other side, bosom buddies cooperating or something like that, (laughs) you know, but it's one Jesus Christ, one Lord Jesus Christ, which is actually what the Council of Chalcedon said in its famous formula.
0: No thanks to Leo.
1: Yeah, right. Uh, okay, so look at what Grundman said is that um, when we look at Jesus, we see uh, the Aryan Jesus not as fulfilling God's promises uh, as contained in Hebrew Bible Old Testament. But in fact, we see him reflecting ancient Near Eastern and Asian ideas, some of which were claimed to be Aryan in origin. Um This was then a method that claimed that they could recognize the unique religious message appropriate to the German race and eliminate the Jewish influence that had distorted it. And so the German, uh, since each people received the message of God in a culturally distinctive way, uh, religious texts such as the Old Testament could not be studied theologically that is, as the unmediated word of God with a message for all people, but rather as peculiar to the Jewish people. And, of course, in order to make the religion of Jesus relevant to the German people, that had to be jettisoned.
0: Gross, but okay, yeah, of course. What else would they do?
1: In the hands of Grundmann and his institute, the History of Religion's Model for Religious Studies envisioned a radical reform of the curriculum. Old Testament would be replaced by a chair in the history of religions in the Near East. New Testament would be replaced by study of the Gospels and origins of Christianity in the context of Hellenism. Church history would be the history of Germanic piety, and religions of the East would be examined to find their Aryan religious element systematic theology would be taught as a reflection on the effective powers of the gospel for pious German life.
0: Yep. So so modern, so scientific, so helpful for the nation, so utterly evil.
1: Yeah. In the service of Nazi- Nazism. Yeah. So um, I just want to, I don't want to spend any more time on Grundmann. He's just a textbook case of, of what can happen with this approach Uh, And I want to point out, as Doris Bergman and Susanna Heschel both point out, after the war, Grundmann was rehabilitated and restored to an academic position in Germany on the grounds that he was merely doing scientific research on the life of Jesus.
0: It reminds me so much of uh, what we just talked about in our Martin Luther King episode, uh, you know, where he observed, uh, like our previous Martin Luther did, that reason can always sell itself out to the highest bidder. And just because someone says they're doing objective or scientific or rational research doesn't mean that they're not utterly corrupt in their intellect and the uses they put it to.
1: Yes, that's right. And the pretense to be scientifically objective and to use that as an excuse uh, for doing covert theology in the name of uh, objective historical research is what we're trying to expose here.
0: You know, it's funny. It's a classic New Testament uh, um Uh, exhortation to test the spirits uh, when we're doing theological work, but I I feel like now um, scientists also need to test the spirits. Um, That needs to become internal to the discipline as well.
1: Yeah, very good. Yes. Uh, You know, all the institutions of Germany, the law, medicine, science, as well as church and theology, were co-opted or coordinated with Nazism. Uh, it's not a unique failure of the church. Uh, it was a kind of a uh, across-the-boards capitulation to the Nazi worldview. Um, well, all right, let's turn attention to uh, Rudolf Bultmann for a minute, because he joined the Confessing Church, and he opposed the Nazification of the church. And he was a very important uh, New Testament scholar, um, some say very Lutheran, um, he took to heart the message of Albert Schweitzer, that the historical Jesus is hardly knowable and in any case not directly relevant to Christian faith. According to Bultmann, um, Jesus died in the flesh and in rose into the charisma, the proclamation, according to the Spirit. A kind of a historical reconstruction. When the body was not found, he is not here. Someone blurted out, he's not here. He's risen. And that's, that's the real orig- historical origin of Easter, something like that. And there's a passage in the Corinthian correspondence where Paul talks about no longer knowing Jesus according to the flesh, Which Boltman picked up on and said that the historical Jesus is simply the presupposition of the charisma, of the proclamation. He is das, das, the that. Um, uh, You have to have a body and a death in order to have a resurrection, and that's what the historical Jesus is a a body and a death, right? Um, He also took Schweitzer's insight that. Um, the uh, a biography that could spell out the inner workings of the mind of Jesus would be impossible. But he did publish a book called Jesus and the Word, which was a sketch of Jesus's preaching, a historical critical sketch uh, of Jesus's preaching. <clears throat> so the main importance of Boltman was that in this way he accepted, the unsavory results of Schweitzer's uh, quest for the historical Jesus, but he drew a rather different uh, um, conclusion than Schweitzer. He said, "I don't know if Jesus was an apocalyptic nut. We can't get that. We can't get back into the head of Jesus. Even Schweitzer's speculation is just another speculation. Uh, the point is, we can't know." What we have is Jesus' proclamation. We can reconstruct that to a degree. But the real message of Christianity is the cross and the resurrection. And that was why he was so very, very popular after World War II. Because he had not joined with Grundmann and sold out to the Nazis Uh, He had, to a degree, resisted Nazism, at least in the life of the church. uh, And he had not uh, marshaled his expertise in service of the Nazi cause. He belonged to the confessing church. Uh, But he also gave clergy a solution to the problem of historical skepticism. Knowledge of the Jesus of history just doesn't matter.
0: Okay, that's... That's weird, and I'm curious how. I mean, th- this doesn't seem to me a strong enough kind of conviction to help you resist the Nazis. But maybe when we get to our episode on before Auschwitz, we can unpack that because I'm curious where he found the both intellectual and spiritual strength to resist the Nazis with what looks to me like inadequate means. But I, I must be underselling him, or maybe he he uh, believed and acted better than he was he articulated.
1: I think that. Quick, the quick answer to that question is the Apostle Paul. The theology of the Apostle Paul gave him the resource he thought he needed, specifically Galatians 3 26 to 28. In Christ, there's neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, no male and female, uh, but all are one in Christ. And he saw that the imposition of the Arian clause. Uh, the law outlawing uh, Jews uh, to be employed in the church as a violation of the very nature of the church according to Galatians 3. So he, he again, consistent with his entire message, uh, the post-Easter proclamation uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of the resurrection of the crucified uh, was a sufficient resource for him.
0: Well, then I say to the skeptics out there, that means that if if you want to be a a righteous crusader, you can't just have the Jesus of history. You also need the Apostle Paul. Hate to break it to you.
1: Right. very good. Yes, and that's that's what I've argued. You know that uh, I've followed Robert Jensen, that Boltman's uh, theology here is a sophisticated form of docetism, um, and I've used this parable that Jensen originated. He goes, yeah, I think I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Yeah, and it's good. <laughs> like, it's, it's something like this. I've got good news. Someone's risen from death and beaten the power of it. He's on the march to bring us his victory. And his name is Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or Idi Amin. Take your choice. Okay. Um, it makes a great deal of difference. um uh, who is vindicated and and why the news of his resurrection is good news uh, and that's why the jesus of history is uh, significant the earthly jesus is significant and this after some time after world war ii in the 1950s this was the sense of uh, boltman's disciple ernst caseman's revolt when he launched the so called second quest for the historical Jesus. And that was Boltman's argument, as I've just basically summarized. If we don't know, uh, at least with historical objectivity, what the word Jesus names, what it refers to, what it means in the world, if we can't give some um, um, historically plausible Uh, interpretation of the reference of the name Jesus to the Jew, the first century Jew who lived and died under Pontius Pilate. If we can't do that, we don't know what we're talking about when we say he is risen. And so notice, this is not an apologetic quest uh, than to found faith on a so-called historical Jesus. This is rather a churchly dogmatic quest to give sense to the Easter proclamation, he is not here, he is risen. It is Jesus uh, who was obedient unto death, even death upon a cross, that is now highly exalted and so forth. So Kazeman said, given the standard academic methods of history, What can we, with strong probability, say about the message of the person and the death of Jesus? That was the so-called second quest for the historical Jesus. And the best fruit of that is Gunter Bornkamp's book, Jesus of Nazareth.
0: I remember seeing that on your shelf when I was a little kid.
1: But you never picked it up and read it?
0: It was heavier than I was.
1: <laughs> it's actually a pretty succinct book it's not all that long anyway you know and basically you know what all of these this the scholarship said was that it did not take the divinity or the deity of christ as a presupposition because in any case historical scholarship cannot demonstrate or you cannot affirm or deny a claim to a human being's deity so within the limits of standard academic methods of history, it looked at Jesus as a human being of his time and place, according to the evidence that could be uh, uh, reasonably, reasonably drawn from the records that we have. And the records are all basically written from the perspective of Easter faith in, G- in Jesus, so there had to be some kind of filtering. How, how do we, how do we, how do we filter out the post-Easter faith of the early Christians, and see if we can, you know, di- distill, as it were, uh, the Jesus before his death and, and as the Christians claim, his resurrection. And with that kind of method, with those kinds of limitations, it produced a Jesus who uh, proclaimed the uh, along the lines of, of Johannes Weiss, the inbreaking of the reign of God, in the word, witness and the mighty works of Jesus for healing, his conflict with the evil one, the exorcisms and so forth. And it revealed in his teaching a, uh, an implicit claim to authority. You have heard it said of old, but I say unto you, right? Um, So they basically said, uh, we cannot say historically that Jesus thought he was the son of God or the Messiah, but we can say that his speech and his behavior had an implicit claim to authority and therefore an implicit Christology, which becomes explicit after Easter. That was the so-called second quest for the historical Jesus.
0: And how how plausible do you find those claims to be able to, to a certain extent, remove the filter of apostolic faith and get back to some sort of core that history, historical standards can more or less verify or confirm?
1: Yeah. Again, it's not, I want to stress this, it's not an apologetic attempt to um, to uh, found Christian faith on a historical Jesus. Um, it's not that. That would be the 19th century quest. It's rather a good faith and conscientious, intellectually conscientious, given how we do history, uh, history of the Napoleonic Wars, history of uh, the American settlement of, of the continent, of the African slave trade. Given how we do history with those kind of methods, conscientiously, what can we with good probability say about who Jesus was and what his message was? Um, and I think if you bear strongly in mind those uh, caveats, that this is, you know, this, this is the method with which you're working I think that uh, something like Gunter Bornkamp's Jesus of Nazareth is a very good book and well worth reading. Um, uh, uh, And again, it doesn't exclude anything else in the New Testament. It just says, this is what we can say as modern people, scholars of good conscience, working within the parameters that we have. But now here you know you you you're kind of pushing a button here because there is a sore spot here there is there is a a problematic point and it was something that was called the criterion of dissimilarity. How do you how do you ascertain a, a, a statement or a deed of Jesus uh, um, uh, as highly, likely, highly probable to be authentic to the pre-Easter Jesus of history. And that criterion of dissimilarity ruled out anything familiar from number one, contemporary Judaism, or number two, post-Easter Christianity. Anything (laughs) familiar from those sources must in principle be set aside. If you're going to Talk about with strong probability uh, about the historical Jesus, and as I've argued this produced in essence the, the this method of the criterion of dissimilarity uh, produced the distilled essence of Jesus rather than the Jesus of second temple Judaism in the first century
0: well it's so deeply invested in in Distancing Jesus from Judaism and the Old Testament. I mean that that's hardly an objective or scientific or historically responsible approach. It still needs our nice white Aryan Jesus to be nothing like those dirty Jews, right? I mean, if if the the plausibility is him not sounding like a Jew, well, you've already told what you think Christianity ought to be, and you're 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 Jesus in the process.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's one of the, the flaws in the so-called second quest. Uh, and I think that in scholars like N.T. Wright uh, and the Jewish scholar, Jacob Neusner, who uh, 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 wrote a book on uh, Jesus in the light of the rabbinic uh, sources. Jesus, what is the name of that book? I forget. Um uh, uh, of course, Jesus was a Jew of the first century, and uh, and uh, uh, what is and also this Jew of the first century somehow is related to the post-Easter faith of Christians in him as, in fact, the divinely vindicated uh, Son of God. Uh, so this criterion of dissimilarity uh, is, is I think, highly problematic. Yeah. I think that just uh, having made that criticism, I do think that the approach of the second quest for the historical Jesus uh, is far more important theologically, because it is Christian scholarship asking, when we say Jesus is Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is Lord, when we make these predications of Jesus, what is the sense of them? Uh, by filling in the blank, Jesus refers to X, Y, and Z in the world. Uh, So that is a process, a reflection internal to the Christian faith and a properly theological question, I think.
0: All right. Well, next time on the show, we are going to talk about another decline and fall from the second to the third quest of the historical Jesus with a closer look at the Jesus seminar and some representative figures therein.